is a fan-off production. everyone, this is episode 366 of Erie International. I am Andy from Germany. And I am Dave from the UK. Our third co-host, David, is from the America, but he's not with us currently. We hope he will be back soon, actually. Oh, he's, he's from one of the Americas, <laughs> not, not necessarily the America. <laughs> yeah, well... It's the an one ongoing that counts yeah. for them. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an ongoing debate which I wasn't aware of until fairly recently. The idea that uh, people from the United States refer to themselves as Americans when really True. anyone from the continent of America yeah. could claim that a title as well. It's a bit of a strange one. But there we go. When they say the Americas, is mm. it the northern part and the southern part? That's so what I assume. Yeah. I think so, right? Yeah. I think so. I think it's so basically it's a Canada of... and the US would be probably the northern yes America um, and then mm. I think Mexico down is South America but don't quote me on it or is there a middle America the, are there three you know Americas there could be maybe there is <laughs> but as far as the as far as um the the uh, the United States uh, is concerned anything to the south of their border is South America because yeah. obviously um, there is no central. <laughs> this is the thing. If you're talking about a continent, then of course, yeah. like you know, Mexico would be in in the central area of the Americas. But broadly speaking, it seems like they just split it into north and south in the same way as you know, Korea, Ireland, um, <laughs> the UK. No, that's not true because well, we have the Midlands in the UK, a much maligned area of our uh, <laughs> our great once great country. Uh, <laughs> Birmingham, places like that, you know, they're lovely mm. places from from what I'm aware of. I've never actually been to Birmingham. Uh, I should at some point check that off of the list, but uh, I've been through that area on the way uh, up further north. Just never had occasion to stop off. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, how I've definitely is. heard the phrase Central America, um, mm. but I don't know which countries would be counted for mexico uh obviously yeah uh, but i'm very bad at geography anyways oh, my geography is terrible <laughs> absolutely awful like i'm aware of the rough correlation of like bolivia to argentina and to brazil and the correlation of those to each other but outside of that like if you pointed to uruguay on the map i wouldn't be able to tell you it was uruguay unless i was reading the, the names you know like yeah. i'm terrible i i often criti not criticize i i gently poke at my american co-hosts on generation animation for not knowing much about european geography um but the truth is that my knowledge of american geography um america the area not the country which <laughs> again we're back into that discussion um it is really really poor actually so uh, you know well, to I, be honest 
I believe most U.S. citizens couldn't point to Uruguay either. <laughs> Possibly, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised, and that's not a slight on Uruguay. It's just the way that it is. Um, I also love how many ways there are to pronounce these places. You know, like Uruguay, 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 Uruguay. It's brilliant. I love it. I mean, I can pronounce it in German. <laughs> oh yes, please. <laughs> I mean, it's just Uruguay. So I'm not exactly sure how you would my pronounce it in English. My new favorite pronunciation. Just... <laughs> my new favorite pronunciation. Now, this is the thing. Amer- um, Americans, uh, I'm just going to be saying Americans when I mean people in the US. I'm sorry, everyone else from America listening to this. <laughs> all two of you, possibly. Um, they, they, they will refer to it as Uruguay. Like, there, it's definitely like a, a hard mm. U if there is such a thing. Uh, more often than not in the UK, we tend to call it Uruguay because we do like to use a, a softer, more rounded U. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's just... There was... I, I'm sorry, I know we are going to get onto the horror talk eventually, people. I, I apologise, but this is the way of, of, of things with me and Andy. We get talking about a random subject and it just goes on for a little while. Um, I was reading something recently about how the perceived pronunciation of countries and and places in general has uh, changed in the UK over the years how we always used to refer to um, Kiev as Kiev and now mm. we call it Kiev because we've opened ourselves up to um the the world and uh, the the local pronunciation of of places like that and it's kind of fascinating uh, listening to all of the different words over the years that were pronounced differently in my mother tongue only a few decades ago, but I've never pronounced them in that way. And it's 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 quite interesting the uh, the way that the language continues to evolve even in our own lifetimes. Uh, it's a fascinating thing. It's really quite an interesting thing to to look into. I don't think we've had as many name changes in Germany. We still say Kiev. Mm. <laughs> and I I do not know the actual pronunciation of the place in Ukrainian. I'm not sure either, <laughs> so. but everyone started calling it Kiev for some reason. So mm. I, <laughs> I don't know. I really don't. I would still be calling it Kiev. I, I call my chicken Kievs chicken Kievs and... The reason for that name is quite clear. Um, but well, my my, my um, I I I I'm a super, I I don't know Chicken Kiev, so I'm just oh, pass Andy. over that. <laughs> Andy, no, it. I mean, you'd have no reason to being vegetarian anyway. But it's ba- <laughs> it is basically as you would expect, chicken uh, with a pocket cut into it, and then you pack it with garlic butter, mm-hmm. and then you roll it in breadcrumbs, and you would either bake it or fry it. And so when you cut into it, it's basically uh, chicken with garlic butter uh, that marinates the inside of it and, and nice. leaks out when you uh, bite into it. It's, it's a really, really lovely dish. It really is. I mean, every ingredient you just named is very tasty. <laughs> it is. It's just, you know, not necessarily something that everyone can or wants to be eating. So I don't know. Maybe we can make a corn version. I'll have to look into it. <laughs> anyway, uh, not to to get in another dig at our uh, US friends for <laughs> some reason to anyway. <laughs> <laughs> for some reason I would believe if Germans say Kiev and um, uh, British used to say Kiev 
I'm assuming that's closer to what the place is actually called in the uh, in their own native language, uh, and maybe just the fact that um, the American English has taken over our media intake so much. <laughs> maybe that's why people started calling it Kiev because maybe the Americans called it Kiev. I don't know. Maybe. Um, or maybe it was just a really horrible attempt at pronouncing it in a Ukrainian, in the way that the Ukrainian accent pronounces it. And, and this is, we Frankensteined it into Kiev. I don't know. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a strange one. It really Thank God we're talking about a Korean movie today that is loosely based on a French novel. There'll be <laughs> many more names ahead of me <laughs> that I will read to y'all. 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 Um, <laughs> uh, and um, probably mispronounce all of them. Uh, <laughs> it's a so good right. job that we have a very forgiving audience. <laughs> <laughs> The movie of the day or of this episode is the movie Thirst, as mentioned, from S South Korea, um, as announced on our social media feeds, which are at EerieINT on Twitter, Erie International on Facebook and Instagram. Our email account is EerieInternational at gmail.com. Send us those messages. Um, maybe put in some strange names that we can mispronounce while reading your uh, message on the air and then you can sit at home and uh, snicker uh, at our dumb mispronunciations of whatever words you're gonna hurl at us so uh, it's a challenge do it um well that's basically it i guess for housekeeping <laughs> yep <laughs> easy one this uh, week yeah true um let's get to a few topics i have one thing that I will mention um, a movie that we watched yesterday. Let me get... Yeah, oh, I'll just start with the movie. Uh, last year, uh, all the Americans were um, excited about the movie Barbarian that came out last year mm. in, in the US. And, 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 uh, and I'm including the other North Americans because all our uh, US and Canadian friends posted about this movie and everyone said this is maybe the best movie of the year definitely like a great horror movie but the important thing is know nothing about it before you watch it so <laughs> bianca and myself did everything to not know anything about this movie and constantly checked when it would be released in germany <laughs> it took a while uh, at some point i realized because usually um when i when i check for for movies um i i just go to amazon because that's where we usually rent our movies because they have the biggest selection and the movie just never showed up and at some point i thought okay now i'm i'm just, just i will look it up on on just watch instead of amazon and mm. because at some point i i suspected maybe it's exclusively on another streamer and that's why it doesn't show up on Amazon and actually that was the case I learned that it is um, exclusively on Disney Plus um, but now yesterday uh, I finally found it to rent on on Amazon so that's how we watched it yesterday um, long story short all I knew about the movie was the poster image 
and one of the actors. I knew nothing else about the movie. And that makes it a little hard to talk about the movie because, <laughs> as everyone else, I just have to tell you, it's a really good movie and you should know nothing about it. <laughs> this is... In, in, uh, it's, it's absolutely true that that is the best way to experience the movie. So if you like horror movies and you haven't seen Barbarian yet, <laughs> watch it, but know nothing about it. <laughs> I'm lucky so far. I've still not watched it. <laughs> to everyone's shock and surprise. Uh, but I, I also know literally nothing about it other than what I've seen in the trailer, most of which I've forgotten already at this point. Mm. So there's a few tiny little bits that have been spoiled, but... I'm probably going to have to get around to watching this sooner rather than later so that I don't end up hereditarying yeah. myself and ruining the point. I still haven't watched Hereditary, but I've heard enough about it that I don't feel like I need to immediately. Mm. Um, okay. So Barbarian, I'm going to try and avoid that uh, from happening and uh, may maybe at some point, you know, hunt for the wilder people as well. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> we never watched a trailer for Barbarian, so I'm not sure what right. the trailer could have spoiled i mean um, but, i yeah. don't want to say too much because if there are people listening who are in mm. the same boat obviously after you've said watch it without knowing anything about it um so we can discuss this after the fact but i think anyone that has seen the trailer will understand what i'm avoiding talking about like the, the, there are certain things about the film which are spoiled by the trailer at least i assume that they're spoiled by the trailer but i'm not going to go into specifics on it hmm. interesting is um i on my letterboxd account i follow 38 people so mm. not too many um and barbarian might be the movie out of the ones that I have logged over the past years mm. that was rated by the highest number of people oh, <laughs> out okay. of those 38 that I follow. Uh, it's it's rare that I'm, I see a movie that maybe more than eight people or so um, have logged. And with mm. Barbarian, it's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 20, 24 people out of the 38 that I follow watched and, and logged this movie on Letterboxd. Yeah, that is a very good hit rate. And, and, and that's just the ones that remembered to, to rank it because... You know, yeah, I'm on Letterboxd. I don't remember to log the movies that I've watched half the time. I wish there was some kind of automatic way that it could do it, but apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, uh, it's a recommendation. Um, if uh, I, I have more things to say about the movie, um, uh, let maybe, maybe maybe I'll phrase is it phrase it this way. The um, as I said, most people that I saw talk about the movie very much praised the movie i have a few things that um mm, didn't make the movie like uh, that much of a masterpiece for me this mm -hmm. is at some point there were, were a few things where i thought maybe the movie could be 10 to 15 minutes shorter and lose a 
few things. There's a, there's a little bit of fat on the movie, just for my taste, or at least for the experiences uh, for the experience that I had yesterday with it. On a different day, it might have been differently, or it might have been different. Um, but uh, Bianca liked it a lot. I th think she gave it four stars and a heart. And out of those 24 people, I believe most of them gave it like four stars and a heart. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so it's it's uh, yeah, very highly rated among my letterboxed community. Um, uh, and I, I very much would absolutely um, recommend it. it. It does great things. And then just a couple of things that I could have done without. Um, but yeah, good movie. Hmm. Recommended. Dave, your turn. <laughs> There's not very much for me to talk about <laughs> at all, to be honest. Um, I've I've been focusing a lot more on the sports side of things uh, in the last week. Um, we thought that we had blown it. Um, Arsenal Football Club that is um, in the last few weeks because we had drawn a few matches we lost against Manchester City we were level on points with them at one point even though we had a game in hand and then we had a game against Aston Villa where we went 1-0 down and then we drew one all this was my own personal horror for that week um, <laughs> that's how I'm going to justify talking about it 1-0 down then we equalised then we went 2-1 down then we equalised then we scored in added time at the end of the match. Uh, the Jorginho hit a ball outside the area, bounced off the top of the post. It went into the back of the goalkeeper's head and bounced into the net. It's one of the most satisfying ways to score a goal. It's <laughs> an own goal off of a goalkeeper, especially when that goalkeeper was formerly your player and has done mm -hmm. nothing but badmouth your club since leaving. Um, uh, our, oh, and World Cup winner. Um, Emmy Martinez is the Argentinian goalkeeper, um, oh, so you know he's he's a World Cup winner. So that was that was entertaining, uh, and then <laughs> um, he went up the other end to try and score from a corner, and uh, we broke on them. And one of our strikers basically just ran it into an empty net and celebrated yes. before he scored, which is the best possible way to celebrate a goal is to celebrate it before you've scored it. It really rubs it in. So. Um, <laughs> You know, and then we we played Leicester yesterday, and um, it it was a, a really dominant performance, but we only won one nil. So um, we've re-established ourselves at the top of the league. It's all hunky dory again. I'm a happy boy, but uh, I didn't really. There wasn't much room left for pursuing other stuff. I've I did watch something this week, and again, it's not horror. And apologies, but I think people are used to this from me at this point. So you know. Um, Picard season three started off a couple of weeks ago, and for those who are familiar, they'll know that the uh, the big exciting thing about the season season three of Picard is that it is essentially the unofficial season eight of the Next Generation, because it brings back all of the original cast, um, all of the main um, original cast anyway. I mean, there's certain people that haven't turned up and, and may not turn up, uh, like Will Wheaton, but he turned up in season two, so it's fine. Um, and these first two episodes, I have to say, they've been just a wonderful walk down memory lane. It's got so much fan service, but the best possible kind of fan service. Um, if I hear people complaining about it, and you know what fan bases can be like with all kinds of different uh, uh, properties, but Star Trek fans seem to be the most divided at the moment. Um, 
I'm I'm just going to start ignoring them because they clearly just don't un- understand or, or enjoy having a good time. <laughs> it it's it's a a really really fun, uh, just fan servicey TV show with plenty of of old faces coming back and um, higher budgets and and uh, even more impressive special effects than the. Uh, than the original series so i've been very much enjoying that and and just to mention something which is horror related uh, i did watch a couple of episodes of bleach so there is that but um other than that it's really been all sports and sci-fi this week um but i i might watch something horror related i'm not going to promise anything but i might watch something <laughs> horror related in time for next week's episode uh but you just have to wait and see on that front i'm afraid <laughs> <laughs> well i spent my week watching musical films <laughs> so good lad if we hadn't watched barbarian yesterday uh only because i found it yesterday <laughs> mm. I, I wouldn't have had anything horror related either but i had the week off from work and i i spent my week uh, <laughs> watching musical films <laughs> i went to the to the public library um saturday a week ago mm. and checked out five movies <laughs> and nice. watched all of them and and so brought them all back yesterday uh, so <laughs> a, a week later i brought them back and got a couple of more <laughs> so That'll do. More, more musicals in my future nice oh and <laughs> probably i should also point out that um there is a kind of, well no it's more sci-fi Anyway, Terry Metalis uh, is the executive producer on uh, season three of Picard, and he was also the guy behind the TV series version of Twelve Monkeys, um, uh, yeah. which I've not actually seen, but I no. hear decent things about. Um, so you know, there you I've go. I've been wanting a... to rewatch the movie for years. I should finally do it. It's been a long time. I, I caught it on TV once, and I missed kind of like the first 45 minutes. Mm. So it, it's one of those movies that's in my blind spot where yeah. I kind of know that I, I, I've kind of seen it, but I've really not. And so ah, I need to correct I see. it. Okay. Yeah. Because I, I did watch it at the cinema back then when it came out. And oh, cool. I rewatched it on video mm. once, maybe, so, but but fairly close still to, to its original release, which by now is... Well, 25 years ago or so long I'm time not, not, not exactly sure yeah. so, i had it on vhs um, i i bought mm. it on vhs and never watched it on yeah. VHS. <laughs> stupid the number of films that i did that with but you yeah, know yeah, you're I, young we, and we, dumb once we do own a dvd of it um but yeah uh, I, I i i've been wanting to re- rewatch it forever i should put it on a on a pile <laughs> mm. and and this time because uh, let's talk about 12 monkeys for a bit here uh <laughs> movie by terry gilliam starring brad pitt and uh, bruce willis and the lady whose name i'm forgetting but um when i went to university for media studies mm. one of my film teachers um <laughs> who was famous for his rants um went on a little rant uh not about the movie 12 monkeys but mm. about critics who reviewed the movie 12 monkeys <laughs> without <laughs> mentioning the the sh- the, sh- the short essay film la jete by chris marquet uh which i had never <laughs> heard of before i'm sure um, none of the critics had either <laughs> that's the problem because yeah it that that thing is the 
bases the inspiration for what Terry Gilliam did. Right. What Terry Gilliam did with with Twelve Monkeys. So mm. there is a direct connection. Mm. But I had never heard of it before this teacher mentioned it. And of course, nowadays you can watch it on YouTube. Not too long ago, I actually looked it up on YouTube. Mm. Uh, so it is on there because I I don't know I I sent the link to someone I guess. In so yeah, I, I should. Finally, watch La Gite and then watch mm. Twelve Monkeys. <laughs> in in defense of those critics, I would point out that twenty five years ago, the world was a much different place, and if you didn't know a lot of this stuff yourself, then you probably weren't going to find it out from you know random YouTube essays or Wikipedia articles or things like that. It was. You know, I, I I'm not making excuses for critics because I think they should have a good memory and uh, a good knowledge base of films in general. But to expect them to know every single uh, thing that every movie is based on um, is is maybe asking a little much of them. Um, <laughs> I, I understand his uh, annoyance. But I, I wonder if maybe um, this is just something that he needed to work on, and he was he was venting <laughs> a little bit. Well, yeah, I think the the was when he said that there was also like twenty years ago now. So mm. uh, again, way, way before you could see these things on on YouTube or anything. Yeah. But he he of course it was or still is from from the the school of. Um, if you are a critic, you should have a well-rounded knowledge of culture in general because film doesn't exist in a vacuum. Yeah, movie yeah. makers are inspired by other arts as well, and and if and if you know Lajite, you will actually you will you will see. Okay, th this isn't. This isn't subtle. <laughs> Terry no. Gilliam is taking Lajite and doing his thing with it. Mm. So. Um, he, I, I guess, um, his his take was: you can, if you want to talk about Twelve Monkeys, it is so obvious that it's taking from Lajite. You actually need to talk about Lajite as well if you want to seriously talk about Twelve Monkeys. Um, but yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying, of course, uh, and that's that's that it's is actually only... something that I'm um, that I'm missing as well. I mm -hmm. would. That's that's the thing. We, my, I mean, the the thing that we are doing here, right? We talk about movies. Oftentimes, we know nothing about them. I watched Thirst today. Didn't do much research on it. Um, Wikipedia tells me it is based on an, or loosely based on a novel by Emile Zola. Mm. So I could have read up <laughs> on that novel. I did a quick glance at the wikipedia summary of that novel but if you would actually in all seriousness want to talk about thirst you would probably have to know about that novel as well and i actually prefer critics that can do that mm. because mm. they teach me something i always say when it comes to like um movie youtube movie critics on youtube or stuff like that um, or, or podcasts, I want to listen to people who are better than me. <laughs> because I'm doing this <laughs> shit myself on, on this podcast and on other mm. podcasts. Uh, and there's tons of people out there who are, let's say, on my level. But I can do that myself. 
<laughs> I want to listen to people who are better than me, who who can teach me something, and that would be people who know Lajetie, probably. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me let me tell you, Andy, that's never been a problem for me. I've always had a a, a massive plethora of people that I can refer to who are, are better at this than I am to to come up with uh, with ideas and thoughts about movies. Um, yeah, I I I think that the problem is it's only obvious when you know something, right? Like it's the it's the thing that they always refer to um, on Mastermind when somebody gives um, uh, the general knowledge around a good old go, but they miss some really obvious questions, and the question master will say at the end, "Well, it's only obvious if you know it," and you know that's true of a lot of things. And you know, you mentioned the fact that. Uh, this is uh, this movie that we're going to be talking about this week is is based on uh, Therese Rakan by um, Emil Zola. Of course, I only know that because you've said it and because it's written on Wikipedia. Um, again, like if this movie was released in the era that Twelve Monkeys was, is every critic going to be expected to know that? Maybe not necessarily just if they've been told go and watch this movie and then review it for us. You know, it would be one thing if you go and talk to the director and you don't, you know, you can do your due diligence. You can interview the director and say, well, where did the idea of this come from? And then they would have to be, uh, they would either have to be honest about it or they could lie to you. But there's not this massive resource. You haven't got a million and one people out there who have seen or read the source material for the movie who can then post somewhere saying, oh, by the way, this has a striking similarity to so-and-so, so maybe it's based on it. And then that information ends up being uh, parroted in a number of different places. And then it just becomes received knowledge because everybody, um, you know, it only takes one person to know it for that knowledge to spread on the internet and become received knowledge through resources like Wikipedia. I think it's probably a lot easier these days to be well-informed about the origins of movies than it was back in the day um and again i haven't got any skin in the fight it's not like i <laughs> i'm related to roger ebert or something like that um but I, I i i do think that it's difficult when we have so much access to so much knowledge and information now um and we can access movies on youtube um you know it, it's it's kind of difficult for us to sometimes put ourselves in the mindset and in the place and situation of people back in the day who didn't have access to all of that information and you know as well informed as they were and as well educated as they were as to what makes a good movie and what doesn't it's impossible to have seen everything you know but i guess the back in the day and we're talking about the days of like newspaper critics Mm -hmm. there weren't as many of them they were paid for what they did and they probably had like a very different education. They probably, yeah. if if you got to be a critic at a newspaper, you probably already had read Zola. <laughs> uh, so that was probably just part of your job, knowing these things. Otherwise, you wouldn't have become or you wouldn't have stayed a uh, a critic at a newspaper um, mm-hmm. for, for these kinds of things. Yeah. And of then, course, there's uh, to just so much out there right now that it is very hard for for anyone to 
know everything, of course, yeah. and then also have uh, read all the classics um, mm. that things may have been based on. Yeah. But I, I will say once again, if if you're a critic and you don't know about certain things, who's going to pull you up on it? Yeah. <laughs> How many laymen yeah. out there know about these things to be able to pull you up on it of and course. make you look like an idiot or, or unknowledgeable? So mm. really, that's, it what comes, was, that's, that, that's sorry. <laughs> that's what I'm often frustrated by when I listen to some of these um, movie critics or comic book critics or so that they only know about movies or only know about comics mm. and that the, the artists themselves they're most often inspired by completely different things um, they're not just taking from movies to make their movies or they're not just taking yeah. from comics to make them at least if they're really good so of course there's these creators as well but um, I'm, yeah, I, I prefer people who, um, yeah, take take their inspirations from outside of their own medium, or at least partially, or or not exclusively exclusively from their own medium, mm. uh, and and then critics who can spot these things and talk about these things as well. Mm. Um, mm. Um, well, yeah, well, I'm I may be a snob about this, but I did go to university. Uh, to study media sciences, <laughs> I was taught these things, <laughs> and that's I and, and I wasn't a good student. <laughs> so. No, that's that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> All right, let's talk about a movie that we haven't read the book for. <laughs> Absolutely. Thirst from South Korea um, is a 2009 horror film written, produced, and directed by Park Chan Wook, loosely based on the 1867 novel Thérèse Raquin. By Emile Zola, the film stars Song Kang-ho as Sang Hyun, a Catholic priest who turns into a vampire as a result of a failed medical experiment and falls in love with Tae-ju, played by Kim Ok-bin, the wife of his childhood friend, who is played by Shin Ha-kyun. Again, many names that I've probably mispronounced. The, the lead in this movie, um, Song Kang-ho, um, most people have probably seen him in the movie Parasite, where he plays the father. Uh, and for some reason, it seems whenever I look up a, <laughs> a movie from Korea that did have a German release, there's a good chance that he's in it. <laughs> uh, he's been in, in um, several of Bong Joon-ho, uh, Ho's movies. Um, so uh, if you've seen any of those, he w there's a good chance that he was in it. And... Um, not entirely sure if he was in other Park Chan-wook movies. But yeah, anyway, Thirst, 2009. It's a vampire movie. It's about uh, two hours and 14 minutes long. And it's it's a weird one. It's an art house uh, vampire movie. Um, we can discuss um, if it is, is. Is it even a horror movie? Is it a drama with horror elements? Is it an art house movie that just talks about vampires to actually say something else? Uh, probably all of it. Um, mm. Dave, I'm assuming you had not seen this movie before, just like I hadn't seen it. No, that's right. Um, it's, a, it's a new one to me. Um, just to hop on to I mean, what you said, is it even, you know, what should it be classified as? What could you classify it as? Um, it, it's... It definitely falls within horror, but I, I do think that it is perhaps best described as a drama with 
some horror elements thrown in. Um, it's not a scary movie. And we've talked before about the fact that horror movies don't necessarily have to be scary. Um, so I, I think that it, it does, it, it definitely qualifies. It definitely qualifies. It's just, it's one of those where it's just more that it has horror elements to it. Like it has vampires. Um, there's an element of, I mean, I, I think it's just psychological, but I think that there there are suggestions of ghostly goings on at the tail end of the movie. Um, so that there are aspects uh, of of horror within this movie, and uh, definitely very happy to be talking about it because uh, I, I think it it counts um, and uh, and qualifies for for discussion on the show. Uh, I I enjoyed it a lot. I have to say. I thought it's nice. a, it's a really well made movie. I'm not surprised to read that it won uh, the jury prize at Cannes um, on, in the year of its release. Um, it was also apparently nominated for a Palme d'Or, uh, which is an exceptional achievement, especially for a movie that didn't come out of Hollywood. Um, although the Palme d'Or does tend to be good at uh, recognizing yeah. uh, excellence in movies from anywhere around the world. Um, I'm I'm still always impressed when uh, a, a movie from uh, somewhere like South Korea is considered for because it tends the Palm Door tends to be oh let's let's have a look at uh, European uh, or or American movies it, 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 it at least to me it feels like there isn't as much uh, representation from. Uh, Asia as as there could be I could be completely wrong on that it's been a long time <laughs> since I've paid any real attention to who won and was nominated for the Palme d'Or but whenever it's been mentioned it's always kind of you know art housey um, uh, movies or like stuff like Mother would be nominated for it or you know things like that so yeah very much enjoyed it uh, had absolutely no idea I, I also have not written Therese Rakan um I have done my due diligence and read up at least very briefly. So I haven't done much due diligence, but I've done a little bit. Uh, I've, I've read about the actual plot of that book, and it's it's very, very clear um, that it is based upon uh, Therese Rakan. Um, it's just that they introduced the vampire element to it. Mm. Um, only other thing I'll say right now, and then I'll, I'll hand back over to you, is... I'm not entirely convinced that the introduction of the vampire element of the story was done in a particularly satisfactory or sensible way in as much as I've got no fucking clue what caused him to be a vampire. Um, but maybe you've got an idea of that. Maybe I missed something. You know, Maybe I looked away for two seconds and a crucial bit of subtitling explained it all away. I don't know. He mentions it during the movie at some point um when he went to that hospital where they did the experimentation with that virus he mm. did get a blunt blood transfusion and <gasps> that right, blood yeah. transfusion came from a vampire from a vampire oh, for God's that's, sake. that's how he he got it yeah i mean that was a throwaway line i did notice the line at the time but i thought that that can't that can't because it, it wasn't that he directly said it. It was more that he alluded to the fact that the blood transfusion was the reason for him becoming what he became. Mm. And I'm just like, 
it's it's bad enough that in the seventies they weren't screening blood for diseases. Now they're not even screening for vampires. <laughs> like, what's going on here? Um, <laughs> yeah, it okay. I mean, that's fine. I guess it it feels like a a very cop outish way of going about it. Um, but certainly, like you know, because there there's all this stuff with like the uh, the Emmanuel virus and. I was thinking, okay, maybe something in his genetics has um, has interacted with that virus uh, in an unusual way, which has caused him... Because I was like, okay, well, the blood transfusion, clearly the blood transfusion kick-started something because he was getting blood from somebody else. And like that's, at the very core of it, that's basically how vampires operate, right? Like They take in fresh blood from other people and, and that's what sustains them. So, But I, I didn't necessarily put two and two together immediately that that was vampire blood um and it seemed a little bit obvious or let's get back to this uh because i have thoughts um mm. but before we get into the movie um i wanted to at least mention um a few things about park chan wook park chan wook um one of the most prolific directors from South Korea definitely one of the most well recognized in in the west um who at, at the latest made quite a splash with the movie Old Boy I I think that was probably the movie that really um put him uh, on the map in the in the west um before that just a a, a few movies that at least had a German release, Joint Security Area, uh, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, then Old Boy, then Sympathy for Lady Vengeance. So that's the 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 Revenge, the Vengeance trilogy. Um, uh, I'm a cyborg, but that's okay. A movie that not many people have seen, I believe, but that I quite liked. Great uh, title. I mean, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, we, we, I was just taken by the title, and then I watched the movie. <laughs> I went to the cinema to see it, and liked it as well. Uh, Thirst Stoker. Uh, I think that's another horror movie, but I haven't seen it. Then the um, uh, how was he involved here? I it's a, a, a Snowpiercer. He produced. Yeah, he did neither. Stoker struck me as more of a kind of family drama where the daughter may or may not be a serial killer i don't well, wikipedia says psychological thriller yeah I haven't okay seen it. yeah i've not seen it either i'm literally going off of what i saw in the trailers for it um okay. there was also a suggestion of some kind of inappropriate relationship between her and her stepdad or foster father or i, I don't think they were related by blood but yeah, it's yeah okay yeah. Um, the Handmaiden was a movie in 2016, and his latest one, Decision to Leave, that one is just currently in cinemas in Germany. That, that movie. <laughs> when you live on Twitter, and you live in the UK, and Brexit is a thing. Sorry to bring this to Brexit, but I just have to mention this. Um, Whenever I see Decision to Leave trending on Twitter, I immediately think it has something to do with Brexit. And recently, every time I've clicked on it, it's because Park Chan-wook is getting his flowers for making another great movie. And (laughs) I'm really happy about that. But I'm also kind of like, oh, I was hoping there was some drama over Brexit again. So (laughs) it's a a weird place to be psychologically. But I'm, I'm I'm really happy that so often it's just because someone made a great movie and this is why it's trending. 
Yeah, I think um, seeing the trailer and the announcement for a decision to leave uh, was what actually um, got me to to look into Park Chun Wook currently and why we're doing Thirst now mm. um, on on this here podcast. So yeah, I, st- I still believe his his most famous movies are probably the the Revenge trilogy but he yeah. uh, in in like um art house circles and 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 um at festivals like Cannes and the like oh i think an, a new park john wook movie is always an event it's always worth looking um for and yeah but this this quite a uh quite some that i that I hadn't seen yet, and uh, so finally, we're doing Thirst. Let's get back to the movie. Um, you just, you were just talking about the the virus and the and the and the blood transfusion, and how did he even contract the the vampire virus or whatever it is? And in the beginning, and the, and the movie, so it's it's two hours 14 minutes it, it feels like the movie shifts several times in not not exactly in tone but the 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 characters go through several developments there's a lot of story going on and in the beginning when the priest decides he he wants to go the to that to that lab to the testing facility where they're um trying to find a cure for that manual virus um and they when they talk about the the disease 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 mm. <laughs> of that virus they say it mostly um befalls unmarried men um and then he gets the blood transfusion and, and gets the virus the, or, the, or the vampire whatever what, what do you call the he gets vampirism by blood by a blood transfusion i don't know um <laughs> Contracts for the vampire via I don't know. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a weird one. <laughs> um, anyway, for at that point, I thought, is this is this going to say something about about AIDS? Is it about um, the fact that um, in the in the beginning, the during during the AIDS crisis, uh, the 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 group that was mostly talked about regarding AIDS was was gay men uh and here it says the manual virus mostly is contracted by by unmarried men um and and in the past oftentimes or, or sometimes um vampirism in movies because of the the, the blood um delivering a certain kind of disease has been used as a metaphor for for AIDS, um, and that's where I started out with this movie. But then it did not go there, at least not that I noticed <laughs> afterwards. Uh, after he um, gets released from from the lab and gets back to to the city, uh, I never had the um, the sense that the movie was saying anything about AIDS. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I I do. Um, I think 
for me, it definitely felt like there were some references to, I mean, I've already mentioned it, like there was an issue in the UK back in the 70s where people weren't having their blood screened when they were donating. And as a result, um, there were several STDs, including in the 80s, we had a few people that unfortunately did contract AIDS as a result of blood transfusions. Um, I didn't, I, I guess I hadn't thought about it until you mentioned it, but the whole unmarried single men, I didn't pick up on the fact that they might have been talking about gay people or gay men. Um, but it does kind of make sense that that could be a reference. I, I, I suppose the only thing that doesn't quite work for me is the fact that they're completely ignoring the fact that women, uh, you know, gay women exist as well. But then I, I suppose if you look back at the AIDS pandemic of, of the 80s, um, was it a pandemic or an epidemic? I, it was a worldwide hmm. thing. So I would I would say it kind of... I, it's a weird one, isn't it? Um, I would have to look up the definitions for yeah, these Yeah, I don't, don't want to... <laughs> anyway, um, the uh, what was going on in the 80s with, uh, with, with AIDS then, um, it affected an awful lot more men than it seemed to affect women at least that was the visibility aspect of it it was always gay men that people were talking about and showing mm -hmm. women didn't really seem to get featured that much um but as we know aids hiv um they're both indiscriminate uh where it comes to men or women uh straight or gay so I like the fact later on in the film, this is all stuff that's occurring to me now because I hadn't really considered that angle mm. until you, you talked about it just now. Um, the fact that she said, like, I thought, I thought you said that it doesn't affect women. And then like they, they made some kind of excuse about, well, you know, like you've got as much of my blood as I've got of your blood now. So that's mm. why you're being affected by it. Um, it. It could be speaking to the fact that a lot of suppositions were made about how, uh, HIV and AIDS uh, only really affected men when truly it affected everybody you know any anyone could catch it um again as with many many subjects i am not educated enough on the subject nor am i intelligent enough to pass the facts off the top of my head to to make a a, a sweeping statement and i i would also assume that a sweeping statement wouldn't be uh, fit for purpose anyway um i i think that there's definitely aspects of um i think i think there are references to it that are either directly being made or could be judged to be made um but I, I honestly don't know if they're trying to make those links yeah. or not. It didn't occur to me at the time, but that's more me than um, than, than yeah. I said I, I wasn't sure about it either because then after after uh, the the initial um, you know, that, that that initial sequence in in that in that testing lab, I felt the movie didn't really pick up on that topic. Mm. So yeah. I, I I could have just be uh, over interpreting <laughs> no, what I, was going on. I I, um, I I don't think it's an over interpretation because it's very very obvious when you think about it. Like you know w when you brought yeah. it up, it, it suddenly made me think of all these things. One of the other thing, one of the things that confuses me slightly though, is that like apparently it just doesn't affect African men, which 
I, I don't know why they brought that up. But right. they said yeah. that it only affects white men and Asian men. And yeah. I was like, well, <laughs> that's, mm -hmm. it, at the time I was like, okay, so maybe, maybe they're going to come back to this. Maybe it has something to do with like sickle cells or something like that. I don't know because mm. like sickle cell anemia is something that only affects black men. And so I wondered if it was like a reverse of that, like this is an illness that, that targets people that don't have that specific issue. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a very weird thing to say and then not come back to. It's just mm. like, oh, by the way, yeah. there's, there's this thing. Um, it won't mm. come into the movie again. It won't <laughs> affect us. It won't affect you. It won't affect any of the, of the cast. Because mm. we have, apart from the Doctor at the beginning, who um, wonderful kind of, um, I'm guessing it's a colonial French accent. Um, or he may be a, I, a French. I saw the German dub. So oh, okay. They so, all spoke perfectly German. Except perfect for German. Okay. Um, he, he had a, a very French accent. Mm. Um, some of the words that he pronounced, he pronounced very, very strangely. <laughs> very peculiar pronunciations um but yeah like apart from him like there wasn't a single other i suppose the other doctors at the at the lab after after um sang kang ho's character comes back to life you do not see a single black person for the rest of the movie and mm. i don't understand why they would make that reference then in that point mm. it's, it's, it's a weird one isn't it but there we go Speaking of when when he comes back to life, the movie, at least in the in the beginning, um, was very interestingly edited because it jumped quite a bit. It left scenes in a somewhat open and just um, jumped to the next scene where you mm. thought that there, there, there could have been like a another sentence or another action to conclude that scene. Yeah. The movie just edited and jumped to the next scene and left the conclusion to be like, like developed in your head, mm. um, which I, I believe the movie didn't do as much anymore from a certain point on. Did you notice that? I, I definitely noticed that there was some interesting editing that was used, like the, the very opening of the movie. I wondered if I had um, may, maybe missed something uh, because it was um, supported by adverts. Sometimes those adverts can play uh, a little bit of uh, havoc with the, the running of the actual film. You can miss stuff. So I kind of skipped back 10 seconds to make sure that I hadn't missed anything. Because it just kicks off with this story about the yellow sponge cake, but it's not told in the yeah. normal way where, um, you know, someone says, I once had a dream where, and then it, you know, it, like it doesn't establish anything. It just goes straight into him saying, um, it looked delicious. And I, I wanted to eat it. And it was, you know, it, it, they just kind of, cut into the conversation maybe 15 mm -hmm. seconds later than most other movies would do um it did jump around a lot in that early going i assumed that the the reason for that was because they wanted to get through a long time span in a very quick time and having mm -hmm. such obvious jumps 
were a device to make it obvious that these these jumps in time were happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't a massive fan of some of the cuts because it felt quite confused. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I had to stop for a second to figure out what was happening, what the intention was, where we were now, what was going on. Um, but looking back on it, I, I think it was an effective uh, technique that was employed. I, I, I think that I prefer the rest of the movie when it was cut in a slightly more orthodox way. But it worked. It worked. I, I, I noticed it. It, it was. It took a little bit of getting used to, but I, um, mm. I did. I got there with it. <laughs> I could follow yeah. it. It was fine. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting. We, we talked mm. about editing quite a bit last week, and I. I whole week I still thought about editing in theater. <laughs> mm, mm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I uh, don't want to go too deep into that conversation again. Um, and yeah, I, I think you're, you're right. Um, it probably was like a, a technique to to really make clear to the audience that there he, now there is a like a, a, a jump in in time or location i thought it was very interesting just to where the the scenes were cut off a little earlier than other movies would do it probably mm. uh, um yeah you, you mentioned it right you saw it on an ad supported um streaming service that's where we were able to to find it for you in the uk i was lucky enough and i actually learned about this because I was looking for where to watch Thirst. Um, there's an there's a, a a streaming service in Germany, and I, and I know at least in the US they they have something similar, a streaming service where you can stream movies and TV shows and documentaries for free if you have a library card. Mm, and of course, they they yeah. have a s- certain collection of of things, but they had several. Um, um, of Bong Joon-ho's movie and from Park Chan-wook they also had uh, Thirst so uh, we, we do have a card for the public library as mentioned earlier on this episode and I was able to log into that streaming service and uh, see the movie there without any ads or anything it was very nice that's something that I've noticed uh, a lot more recently it, it, we have a similar system over here in the UK it's tends to be that you can access uh, a limited number of um, uh, e-books as well as uh, audiobooks. Mm. Um, it's not as far-ranging as uh, the services that you could get in a library where you know you, you could rent uh, a movie yeah. but and, and the selection is is somewhat limited because it's still I would guess in its infancy. But it's it's good to see that libraries are embracing the newer technology and mm. that they're opening themselves up to the idea of, of lending in a in a digital uh, mm. sense. Um, but yeah. I I don't know if I'm going to have to look into it because it's been honestly a couple of years since I last looked into it because I, I got big into audio books during the pandemic. And um, it seemed like uh, borrowing them from the library was uh, a good way of going about it mm. on the up and up. You can go on YouTube and you can just type in audiobook and there'll be hundreds of, yeah. of books that have been uploaded. I don't know legally or not, but um, 
I wanted to see what was available out there. Um, legally, yeah, this, this, this streaming service, this, so this is an interesting thing because these are two separate services. What you just described, that is, our, our public library does that as well, that you mm. can uh, like um, borrow a, 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 um, um, an e-book uh, from the library and they just like a physical book they have to buy a license per e-copy mm. um, so when you rent or, or borrow that e-copy no one else can can rent the book and um, until you give it back mm. And, but this streaming service is not tied to one specific library. It is open to, uh, probably to every library in Germany. I believe not every library is participating because you still have to type in where you are and then it mm -hmm. will tell you if your library is connected to that service. Yeah. And then it is just a, a, just a streaming service. So I don't have to okay. rent first. I can just stream it on that service because my library is partaking in that service. I can type in my um, my login information as I would do on the on the um, internet service, the the e service for my library, and then I can just stream the the catalog that is presented on this service, which is called Film Friend um, in mm. Germany. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. All right, back to the movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess the 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 main part of the movie we, we've talked about the like the, the the opening. I don't know, half hour or whatever, for quite a bit now. Uh, main part of the movie, obviously, is when the the, the priest meets this this old um, friend of his from his childhood. Uh, he meets the the mother, and uh, this this friend is now married to the girl who they had taken in as a child took care of her and well raised raised her like a daughter but she is not blood related so <laughs> the 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 guy was able to to marry um the the young lady but the the priest who is now a vampire um falls for the lady and she falls for him so they begin an affair she is unhappy in in the family that she grew up in she's the, the mother doesn't treat her well her husband is a sick weirdo <laughs> that, that sounds worse uh, than i meant it he's he has <laughs> like f a physical sickness <laughs> illness <laughs> uh, and he's a bit of a weirdo yep. uh and and she's very unhappy she hurts herself she mm, she doesn't really run away but she kind of does so at, at night she just runs for a while and then she comes back home <laughs> mm. uh, so she, it, it is this this pseudo running away uh, which probably has more of a psychological effect than an actual uh, I'm, I'm leaving my my situation effect um, so they start this affair um, at some point she finds out that he, he is a vampire she wants to become a vampire as well he doesn't want to do that um they kill her husband the priest finds out that the husband never hurt her that she hurts herself he becomes angry he kills her he regrets killing her he makes her vampire now they're both vampires um he usually so there's this the, this this patient 
um, I, and I believe that's the patient with the with the cake story from the yeah. beginning. Yeah, Who, yeah. He's he's in a coma, uh, and so <laughs> the the priest drinks his blood um, just a bit at a time so that he doesn't die. But he's like this this resource of <laughs> of nourishment for the priest who obviously doesn't really want to kill people. She doesn't really care. She enjoys. <laughs> drinking blood from people she she actually becomes quite a monster she's a she's a psychopath and i, I think that <laughs> it's quite clear that um she is uh broken well before the killing of her husband um she is uh injuring herself and i think i feel like initially she's injuring herself just because it's like this self-harm thing it's almost like a coping mechanism but then yeah. later on, it takes on a slightly more sinister term, uh, turn. Sorry, where she's harming herself because she wants to convince uh, the priest that her husband is harming her, and it, it's quite clear that she plots the entire thing. Like she wants him to um, to to get rid of her husband for her, um, and and it was pretty much that point on i was just like i really don't like this woman at all like i i felt very sorry for her at the beginning when it was clear that she was essentially just brought up as like a, a concubine for for this uh sick weirdo as you as you um as you kind of called him um there's a line from her uh, adopting adoptive mother uh where she says uh it was quite easy she just moved out of my bed and into his that felt very skeezy like that that felt quite nasty mm. you know um because it's like well she had no choice in this like you know she didn't consent to the marriage almost it feels like she was just forced into it so i had a lot of sympathy for her at that point but then the film very quickly gets rid of all of that sympathy and replaces it with just utter contempt frankly like i mm. i thought that she was a a, a massively contemptible character um, there's not many characters in this film that I actually like particularly. I, I think that um, uh, Sang Kang Ho's uh, character, uh, was it Sang Hyun? Sang Hyun, yeah. Um, I run out of patience with him very quickly. Uh, possibly because of how easily he seems to abandon his vows. Um, like he's, he's, he's meant to be this devout catholic right like he's a i i I get that he's having a little bit of a a crisis of of faith and that's why he volunteers for the lab work um but i i didn't feel like it was that he was questioning his faith it was just more that he was just depressed that he couldn't do anything for any of his uh for any for any of the, the the people that were in the hospital and he was kind of looking to get away from it somehow um the one thing that I've always been aware of Catholics is that like the, the one like unforgivable sin is suicide. So the fact that without skipping a beat, he just jumps out of a window to try and kill himself. I was just kind of like, Oh, okay. I'm not sure about this. This, this seems like too extreme of a swing for a Catholic priest to suddenly just throw themselves directly out of a window to kill themselves or off of a building to kill themselves. Um, and then he very quickly descends into, um, adultery and murder. And I, 
I get that they try to explain a lot of that away with the talk that he has with um, the what 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 would you refer to him as the older priest who mm-hmm. um, who is blind. Um, I, I don't know if he has a different. Um, he's just referred to as his superior at the monastery in the Wikipedia article, so I'm just going to refer to him as that. Um, his blind superior, his father figure, I guess you could maybe call him because there's the story of how he grew up an orphan in a in a church orphanage so i suppose he is the closest to a father figure that he has um he unusually for this kind of movie he immediately confides in someone else what's going on with him which i like because normally these films it's like oh my god i'm turning into a vampire i can't let anyone know in this he goes straight to this uh father figure of his and the next scene he's got his hand half in his chest yeah. uh which is a, weird it's a weird scene but i also really like it because it's like well how am i gonna prove to you a blind man that i'm a vampire well you can put your hand in my chest and then feel as the as the wound heals up by itself um so he, he kind of he tells him about all of that stuff um but you know i it just, it all kind of feels... Uh, oh, yeah, th- that was the point what I was going to say. He So he says to him um, that he feels like uh, he he's turning into this vampire and, and somehow it's affecting his mind, like it's, it's, it's making him want to do all of these different things. So they at least try to explain it away to a point that it's his nature is changing because of him turning into a vampire and it's not necessarily that he's just abandoning these beliefs it's more that something else is something stronger is taking over but it did feel a little bit strange to me that a character that was clearly very devout and and wanted to do good for his community just immediately abandoned everything that he held true and yeah it just again not the massively likable character. I, I felt he swung too quickly, too, too far, too quickly. Mm. Um, yeah, I was surprised um, a little later on in the movie when he starts um, basically assisting people with their suicide. Um, mm. He he and and that he what he uh, he, he tells that to uh the the lady character i don't know his <laughs> name um that yeah he that there's these people who want to end their lives uh so he helps them by drinking their blood <laughs> and mm. and that is something that where i felt like this is similar to what you just described this is very very much not the nature of the the at least the the priest part of your character um because there's a, a scene early on in the movie where he takes the confession of, a, I believe, a nurse. And I yeah. believe they they talk about suicide in that confession. I only half remember that scene, to be honest. Yeah, so when... she... she um, he, he, he says that you have to stop thinking about that and mm-hmm. you should put your faith in science and take some antidepressants. Yeah, right, right, exactly. And I believe she is the woman that, that we later on see... Um, where he um, assists her, uh, where, where she puts on like a, a black dress or something and lays down in her apartment, and he he drinks her blood. I and and I, there's a there's a shot 
um, where the camera is close to her wrist, and we see like scars from from her having tried um, uh, to commit suicide by, by cutting her wrist. And I, I'm not exactly sure, but I, I, I assumed that's the character from the confession scene earlier in the I movie. I didn't even connect those dots. I'm glad mm. that you've said that because I, I, I thought maybe that it was the woman that he was carrying on with. Um, I really should remember everybody's names, but I, I'm just terrible at that. Um, Teju, I'm mispronouncing yeah. that awfully, but that is her name, Teju. Um, so I, I wondered if it was her, but I that whole thing got a little bit confusing. I was just like, okay, let's just carry mm. on here. I'm, I'm, I don't need to understand everything that's happening here. I just need to follow what's happening mm. in the main story. So I'm, I'm glad that you picked up on that because now that you mention it, that absolutely does make a lot of sense. Um, and was he drinking her blood because he wanted the antidepressants? Like, <laughs> was he feeling depressed? And so he was I, like... I, I thought he uh, was just hungry. <laughs> I, you, see, you see, maybe I've been watching too much of what we do in the shadows, but yeah. I remember an episode of that where they went clubbing and uh, and drank someone's blood, and it was like... Uh, there, there's a lot of, of uh, vampire fiction where they uh, basically say the same thing. It's like, if you mm. want to get drunk, then you need to drink the blood of somebody that's inebriated. Um, and it would kind of make sense if it was the same thing with like antidepressants <laughs> and things like that. Well, thing is... She still wants to commit suicide, so maybe she's not on antidepressants. Um, well, she should be because he told her to put her faith in them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but th then maybe she wouldn't want to commit suicide anymore. So, uh, I, I I thought he was just because that's that's something that they that he and, and Taiju oh, talk course. about. Yeah. Where do we get our blood? Where do we and get the blood? He he says, "Well, I'm taking it from these people who want to die anyways." And she says, "Well, I don't care. I'll just take anyone." <laughs> yeah but if you don't if you don't take too much blood then you can keep coming back for more you know it's yeah. basically you have a, a herd of, of dairy cattle at your disposal and as long as you don't patient. over milk them then um you can you can carry on for some time this is the weird thing he works in a hospital like just get your blood on tap you know like um cassidy in um uh in in, in, in preacher, preacher. Yeah. you know <laughs> you don't he, have he, to go hunting people he does take um, blood bags. We, we he see does. It. It's Teju uh, who goes psycho the moment that she yeah, has yeah. all of that vampire power. I think that that's, well, to me at least, the, the core of the movie is the relationship between the priest and Taiju and the, the, this, this toxic relationship and this codependency because they several times mm. basically try to leave each other and they always end up back together. And it just gets worse and worse uh until um he decides okay this is we have to end this by ending us yeah <laughs> and she doesn't want to but and i thought that was a very creative ending for the movie where he just puts all of them in a car drives out to the like to, to a cliff and makes sure that they can't get away and that they will be exposed to the sun and will just hmm. burn to death <laughs> it's been done in a few movies since uh is it 40 days of night 
It's 30. 30. I always get the number wrong. You knew the film I was talking about. Josh Hartnett basically does the same thing at the end of the movie. He's like, I don't want to be a vampire, so I'm just going to sit here and uh, have a lovely final few minutes with you before I turn to dust. And I would probably... I would be... The comic book is probably older than Thirst is. I'm not exactly sure about the movie adaptation, but I'm sure the the comic book is older. Do you know what? For some reason, I would... Yeah. Why am I thinking I, that? I, I believe even the movie is probably older. The movie's older than that, yeah. 2007. Yeah. But again, this is based on Therese Rakan, where the two main characters at the end of the book take poison in mm. front of uh, the mother-in-law. <laughs> Like it's very spot on to the book, uh, oh, okay. by all accounts. So, um, what I do like about that set piece is that it could have been like a, a two and a half minute scene. It could have just been, you know, they rock up. Um, he snaps the key off um, in the uh, in in the uh, in, in the ignition, and then after that, it's just a case of okay wake her up, the sun comes up, they burn to death, and that's the end. But they go through this protracted uh, Mm. scene, which I love, where she gets in the driver's seat, she finds out that the key's been snapped off, then she decides she's going to get in the boot of the car, which makes perfect sense. Mm. Um, Then after that's uh, not working anymore, because he kicks the boot off of the car and then throws it into the ocean... She basically gets underneath the car, so he, so he he makes the mother-in-law happy, and then like comfortable and whatever, and then proceeds to push the car to the end of the cliff. At which point, I'm thinking, come on, you've done all of this to um to to get back in my good books. Don't ruin it by pushing the mother-in-law off the cliff. But uh, that wasn't his intention. He just wanted to move it to firmer ground where. Um, she wouldn't be able to lay underneath because if you look carefully, she's actually dug out um, the ground to kind of like be in a bit of a hollow, which is a, a nice little touch. Just shot from overhead where you see the the, yeah. the, the car moving, and then she's just revealed lying <laughs> under under the car. <laughs> so good, so good. Yeah. And then we finally get the final scene, which um, you know we could have had in the two and a half minute cut where they're both sitting on the uh, the hood of the car. And there's that brilliant final shot, actually, which allows me to make a joke, where um, you just see the legs, and yeah. they're, like, turned to ash. And she's wearing the pair of shoes that he gave her when he found her sleepwalking, quote-unquote sleepwalking. Um, and then one of the feet fall off, and then there's this very deliberate pause and then the other shoe drops and that's the joke <laughs> and i'm very happy to have been able to make it uh but it's it's a it's an interesting visual and the fact that it focuses yeah. on the one bit of selfless kindness that either of them gave to the other in their relationship which was here's my shoes your feet are obviously ruined um yeah. And it, it it was I think the, the whole the whole shoe topic is something that you could probably analyze in the movie because it is mm. something to do probably with with power and with with taking power because when the the mother um she's had a stroke she doesn't she she, she can't move anymore she can't talk and and then 
Taiju comes home and she puts shoes on the mother's feet and she says something we're, we're wearing shoes in the house now mm, uh, and, the and that is and and yeah, right uh and i believe that is something to do with the 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 way that she was brought up um and and ta taking the the yeah the, the power in the house now so you can't move anymore you've abused me for all my life now i'm making the rules um and we're wearing shoes in the house now and of course you have these several scenes where she at night as mentioned before runs away runs down the street bare feet barefooted mm. how do you say it barefoot suit, the... yeah barefooted yeah and then of course you, you mentioned it there's this one scene where she runs into the, the priest uh she, she runs away from the priest he of course as a vampire way faster than her uh catches her and then um makes her uh put on his shoes she, he just grabs her and and puts her <laughs> into his shoes and then we see those shoes at the end of the movie um again so um I, probably maybe something that's also taken from the novel it's very possible that there's a like this 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 motif of the shoe of the the, the barefoot the, as, as a maybe as a sign of of being poor and abused in this in this family that has taken her in and 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 um, um treats her more as a servant than as a daughter mm. and sister um very very in interesting motif i believe which yeah as i said could could probably be analyzed way further than uh i was capable of <laughs> <laughs> so far today yeah <laughs> but yeah a br brilliant last shot i i in enjoyed that a lot i really like that mm. yeah it worked for me it did um and it, it's a, it's just a well shot movie you know like there's several yeah. shots which are just wonderfully um uh what's the word i'm looking for composition um composed mm -hmm. there we go got it <laughs> so yeah, yeah they are they are really well composed shots um so whoever the um chung chung hoon um come take your flowers the cinematographer for this movie <laughs> um really well done um especially that final scene on the clifftop uh, with the sun and uh, them looking at each other and you see the burns on their faces and it's like a really, really tight zoom shot on their faces. And you see kind of blood pouring out of their eyes, which kind of just looks like they're crying, except that it's mm. uh, it's blood instead. Um, yeah, just some, some very nicely um, shot scenes, um, but also yeah. some, some quite comedic uh, scenes as well. Like there's uh, the, yeah. the scene where he's running away from the house after um having um had a bit of a uh, an argument with um uh, Teju after she finds out that he's a vampire <laughs> yeah. and he yeah. punches a lamppost and yeah. then continues <laughs> to walk away and then there's like a pregnant pause before the lamppost just folds in half <laughs> just, <laughs> just br brilliant bit of comedy did not expect that no yeah. no and it did it, make it me really... laugh caught me by surprise yeah <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's got some good humor in it as well there's not much in the way of humor but when they do decide to put uh, put a joke in there i think it lands quite nicely so um yeah a really nicely balanced film again not surprised that it won awards 
Um, I'm interested that the the title in English is is first, uh, but apparently in Korean it was called. Um, I'm not, I can't pronounce Korean words, so I'm just going to say what it translates to. It was called Bat in Korea, which makes sense. It's a little bit on the nose. Um, but uh, I, I wonder if that's the intention of the poster, because the poster has the two of them kind of top and tailing with uh, Taiju's legs splayed out either side of Sanghyun and they could kind of look like bat wings kind of mm. i don't know and and she's got her hands around his throat to kind of symbolize the um abusive relationship this film really is very good at capturing um a toxic relationship and a a, a codependent yeah. toxic relationship where both of the participants are just as bad for each other as the other mm. one is and yet they can't get away. And there's something about using immortal beings in a toxic relationship that just gives you license to really yeah. push the extremes because they can do all sorts to each other and they're not going to suffer any long-term physical consequence. Yeah. That's an interesting thing because obviously these two in like normal social terms should not be together he's a priest she's a married woman mm -hmm. um, but they are both in situations where they're very unhappy and at some point maybe would rather be dead than stay in that situation and they help each other out um, from those bleak situations and for a while it seems they are happier with their life but in the long run mm. they make their each other's lives even more miserable maybe <laughs> than, That's, yeah. than their original or 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 miserable in a different way <laughs> yeah the, the weird thing is that the actual start of the relationship even though you know one is a, a catholic priest and so shouldn't be engaged in uh physical relationships the other one is married so she shouldn't be engaging with physical relationships outside of the marriage i you know i don't think any reasonable person would begrudge either of them um the happiness yeah. that they found from that but then it very quickly escalates and pretty much everything outside of that initial pairing is just not right um you know both in terms of the fact that they're literally murdering people but also just mm -hmm. the way they're treating each other and specifically in the early going of the relationship the way that she um uses him uh like she really does um manipulate him into a position where he mm. feels like and, and it's almost again we talked earlier about the fact that he he goes very quickly from being a catholic priest to being just like this bloodthirsty monster um there is a timeline that you can follow albeit a very very short one where you can see him gradually getting worse and worse and leading him to the point where he wants to kill her husband um but that wouldn't happen if it wasn't for her constantly pushing him like up to that point he's accepted that he needs blood to survive but he's found a way of doing it which at least in his own head is justifiable like he points out that the um 
yellow sponge guy whose name I don't know and I think forever now he'll be known as yellow sponge guy um, in, who's in a coma. His name's um, Bob. Bob. That's handy. SpongeBob. Oh, God. That's probably the best use for SpongeBob is as a dairy cow, to be fair. Um, They've been milking him for years anyway. SpongeBob, I remember. Yeah. Um, Like, he justifies it as, well, he would want this to be the case. If if, If you'd heard the Sponge story, then you you would understand like that's his justification to um Teju when she first finds out that he's a vampire um and the thing is i can kind of see the logic behind that in a weird perverse way it's like i i i get that there it's not a victimless crime but in the grand scheme of things if you're only taking what you need and you're not doing it to the detriment of that person's health, bearing in mind they're in a coma anyway, then I guess I'm pro-vampire. I think this is where I'm I'm, I'm <laughs> arriving here. It, you know, I, 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 I've, I think that it's probably better for somebody to take a pint of blood here and a pint of blood there than to go out killing people and just draining them all. Um, so... You know, to that point, he's he's kind of like a morally shady, but certainly not a reprehensible character. But she is the one that just twists it enough to turn him into the monster. Mm. Um, She absolutely abuses the newfound freedom and strength and power Mm. that she has once she becomes a vampire. And on, in a weird way, I can understand that because she's been so put upon and downtrodden over her whole life. Mm-hmm. It must be mm-hmm. wonderful to have that power and to feel that sense of freedom and to be able to do what you want. But you have to have some kind of moral center to go with that. And as powerful as you become, you know, the, the old saying of absolute power corrupts absolutely. Maybe that's true, but I, I would have... I mean, you don't get this movie without her being the way she is, because it is very much in line with the uh, the, the novel by Emil Zola, um, as we've previously mentioned. Um, but yeah, like she's she's just a real piece of work, and it's probably nurture more than nature. I I would imagine mm. that it's being treated so badly over all those years does leave you very resentful, and when you get the the agency to be able to do something about it, it's understandable that you would. But it, the way she goes about twisting Sang Hyun to do her bidding, that's the thing that really is unexcusable. Yeah. So I still don't and like still either of them. In the end, they <laughs> they die together. Um, they mm. so they. That's the weird thing about this relationship. They always get back together again, and it it it's not like well, of course. She tries to hide in the in the boot and under the car, but at some point it seems like she gave in, and they both just sat on the on the car and waited for the sun to come up. Mm. So he he didn't like have to hold her down or anything. Um, they just accepted their fate together. Um, well, well, he of course he had planned this, so he his 
accepting the situation had come way, way earlier. But mm. at some point, she also accepts, okay, this is what we're doing now. This is for the best, probably. Um, I can't do anything against it <laughs> anyways. So let's just um, maybe even, I don't know, uh, in, quote unquote, enjoy these last moments together. Similar to uh, um, Michael Lincoln's Midnight Mass does something similar um, mm. with uh, I don't remember the characters' names, but when they they go out on on, on the lake on on the boat, yeah, um, uh, and, and and wait for for the sun to come up and have this this last moment together. Uh, yeah, good, good film. You you mentioned the cinematography. Uh, I should look up if Park John Wook um, tends to work with the same DP because his movies always look very good they're always very well shot and and composed it's something that i've always imagined is the case that once you find a cinematographer that you work well with that you would always want to work with that same person if at all possible and a good cinematographer Mm. won't always be available for every project and that's understandable but it kind of uh, to draw an analogy with football it's it's very much like when a football manager goes to another club normally the assistant manager will follow them because they're yeah. vital to how that manager does their job. So it yeah. would be interesting to see. I know not all um, mm. directors do have the same uh, DP, mm. but um, it tends to be the case. Yeah, yeah my, I guess oh, oh, uh, that is often the case, at least for high-profile directors that they work with um, a cinematographer for... I don't know for every movie or for at least or for a period of their work, mm. unless maybe the the person is not available at the time for some reason and they can't wait, or maybe they want to try something different stylistically. Yeah. Um. Where, where another DP is better suited than the one that they used to work with. Um. Or yeah, there's always reasons. Um, yeah. But I, I I would absolutely I I would assume that Park Chan Wook. Um, has a has a DP a DP that he worked with at least on on several movies, if not on all of them. It looks like he has worked with Park Chan Wook. Oh, sorry, Park Chan Wook on a lot of movies. Um, he did both Old Boy and Three Extremes, mm-hmm. two thousand three and two thousand four. He was the um. This doesn't say that he was the cinematographer, but it says films that he's worked on, so I assume he was cinematographer in all of these movies. Um, so he did Old Boy, um, he did Lady Vengeance, he did I'm a Cyborg, but mm. that's okay. He did Thirst, mm. uh, Stoker, um, The Handmaiden. That seems yeah, to okay. be the final one that he worked on. Um but again, that could be... To be fair, he's been very busy since then. Um, it looks like he worked with... Oh, he was the cinematographer on Last Night in Soho. Oh, right. He, okay. Yeah, he worked with Edgar Wright on that in 2021. He's he's going to be working on Wonka, uh, the Paul King uh, movie, which will be yeah. coming up in the next year or so. so. I'm very curious for that movie. He's a very busy boy, and that might explain why... Um, he's not worked with pa- Park Chan uh, Park Chan Wook on any films since because two films in 2017, including It 
Andy Muschietti's it. He was the cinematographer on that. This guy, mm-hmm. he was he worked on Hotel Artemis in 2018. Uh, he did Zombieland Double Tap in 2019. Then he took a gap year in 2020 for reasons which we don't really have to go into. Um, Last Night in Soho, 2021. 2022, he did Uncharted, where the um, the mm. old uh, Toby... Uh, not Toby. I can't remember Spider-Man. Anyway. Um, Tom Holland. <laughs> Tom Holland. Tom Holland, that's it. I was going to call him Toby Holland. Toby Maguire used to be Spider-Man. Or yeah. he is in some universe. <laughs> to- Toby Holland is the strange genetic uh, combination <laughs> of the two of them. Um, so, yeah, he's he's had at least one big film that he's worked on every single year barring 2020 since he last worked with Park Chan-wook and it seems as though he he had one year where he did three movies but other than that it's very unlikely that he does more than one or two in a year so maybe it's just that he was super popular at the time and he's obviously in in a lot of demand because there's a lot of very good filmmakers that wanted him to work with them including Edgar Wright who I will always have on the list of great directors. Um, And Last Night in Soho looked amazing. So, um, yeah, I'm very happy for his success. So Park Chan-wook's latest movie uh, is by a different guy who it seems has uh, so far mostly worked in, in Korea... All right, very interesting, very interesting indeed. Hmm. Okay, well, 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 again, what learned? Ah, that was a a German uh, German English expression. I'm uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's all right. <laughs> there's, I, this, there's there's these there's these things that that in 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 Germany you you say as a joke where you take a German phrase mm. and directly translate just word by word into english so right. that it is bad english okay <laughs> but if you know the phrase as a german you you realize okay this is just the the german phrase in english words <laughs> but so, it's not real english so, so you're you're basically saying it's it's germanglish is what you're uh, speaking <laughs> maybe it's, it's like japanglish <laughs> but not quite <laughs> or spanglish <laughs> getting deep into the weeds on combo words here <laughs> the strange thing is i understood the meaning of what you said <laughs> yeah well <laughs> i guess the, the the words still they still have meaning you to, yeah yeah to, to to one meaning <laughs> so um is there anything else that we want to say about this movie dave is there anything still left unsaid not that I can think of. I mean, we 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 talked about the fact that the the vampire. I, I tell you, actually, there is one thing, and that is that the tone of the movie really swings from one way to the other um, with this film. Like the way that it started off, I thought it was going to be a very moody piece about like this guy struggling with his vampirism mm. and reconciling it with his faith. And then the second half of the movie is literally just my girlfriend's a psycho and I've got to keep her under control. And I think that they it's a testament to everyone involved that they made it hang together as well as they did because Mm -hmm. there are several movies out there that have a similar tonal shift 
and we've spoken about some recently that I haven't necessarily enjoyed that much because of how unrelated the two halves seem to be. This one manages it very nicely and I think that's to everybody's credit from the the writer to mm-hmm. the director to the cinematographer and of course everybody that was involved uh, on the uh, on the film crew and uh, the actors involved as well. I, I thought they gave really good performances. It's difficult, mm. always difficult, when you're watching a film in another language um, to know exactly how good the performance is because as, as a non-native speaker, I don't know how certain things should be delivered. But mm. everything felt like it was delivered in a realistic and believable way. So, um, yeah, I, I, I would like to give them props for how well they managed to take these two disparate halves of a movie and mesh them together yeah that's true in the beginning i thought okay this this could totally be something like uh only lovers left alive Mm. and and then later on uh it it definitely ramps up the the horror elements when they even start flying and jumping and and um there's oh, yeah. at times quite a lot of uh, quite uh quite a lot of blood uh and it, the, the movie at times becomes pretty brutal in a in a horror genre style mm. so yeah it's but it's still but it, it. It, it stays coherent mm. um mm. yeah and also the um the special effect of um when Sang Hyun first picks up the mother-in-law in her chair and takes her into her room. <laughs> yeah. The way that they are able to do that, I'm I'm not sure. It I'm I I feel like I've got a fairly good nose for CG when I see it, and I don't detect any CG involved. So it looks like it's all done practically. They could perhaps have like had some wires which they took out later in in post, but I'm mm. not entirely sure how they did it short of maybe having one chair which was on a wire that he picks up and then a second chair with a very realistic looking dummy in the chair that he then carries because there is a moment where the camera loses track of him where i think he almost walks behind the camera if i remember correctly um and it's a very cool effect like i was looking at it thinking i've got no idea how they've Mm. done this and I, I don't know what the budget on this movie is, but I'm assuming that they don't have the... Oh, $13 million. No, that was the box office. Good Lord. Um, yeah, there isn't a budget here, so I don't know how much they had to spend on it. It doesn't look cheap, but it doesn't look like the sort of movie that's got loads of money to spare on really elaborate practical effects with hidden wires and, and things like that. And. I love a movie that can have a, a, an effect in there that I've got no idea how they quite carried it off. And and that's mm, one of those. I thought it was a really cool little effect and it, it took my notice immediately. I was like, oh, this is cool. I have no idea how they did it, but it's really cool. Yeah, and they do it again later on when she picks up the chair. <laughs> and Yeah, and the weird yeah. thing about that is that she puts it down and then people just don't ask her about it. They just move back on to another subject. And I'm like... Yeah. Guys, this is not normal. <laughs> Why are we ignoring the hundred pound woman who can lift the two hundred pound chair and woman? <laughs> oh man! So we both recommend the movie. Um, it's it 
it's different um, from most movies that we talk about on here. Uh, it is one of those movies where you could play it in a. Uh, it probably did play in 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 art, uh, art house, art cinema theaters, um, but it does have these genre elements where mm, you're. I don't know where where some people in the art house crowd uh, m might be repelled, but yeah, d definitely worth watching um, and and worth discussing. Hmm. Yeah, agreed. Okay, so let's get to double feature picks because this is um, a bit of a different movie, not uh, like a totally straight up horror movie. I picked um uh, a french movie that is definitely not a horror movie although it does have um similar traits as as thirst does it's also about like a, a toxic relationship about codependency about people who just can't stay away from each other um, but might not be um, good for each other, and uh, I won't spoil the ending. But so the the movie is "Love Me If You Dare" from two thousand and three. Wikipedia calls it a romantic comedy drama. Uh, it's directed by Jan Samuel, and it stars Guillaume Canet and Marion Cotillard. I believe this was the first movie that I saw Marion Cotillard in. Um, who then later on, of course, uh, became quite an international um, film star. In, in she did the she was in Inception. She did that Edith Piaf movie where she won I don't know maybe every <laughs> award that an actress or an actor uh, could get at the time. I don't know. So anyway, this is about these two characters, a boy and a girl, who. Um, get to know each other as children, and they start this game. They have this 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 tin box, and um, they they set dares for each other, and whoever um, does the dare uh, gets the box or gives gives the box to the other person with a new dare, and. Uh, they do that throughout their life and the dares escalate and escalate and escalate. The older they get, the more extreme the dares get. Mm -hmm. It's a great movie. Um, not too many people saw it at the time. Probably no one has seen it since. <laughs> I saw it at least once at the cinema, maybe even twice Uh Again, probably one of those movies that I saw at the cinema and rewatched afterwards, but I haven't also haven't seen in, in almost twenty years. Uh, but a movie that um, s s still comes to mind uh, when I think of Mario Cotillard or about French movies that I liked, and, and uh, so fan fantastic movie. Uh, and the the escalation is is very intense to watch uh, the relationship between these two characters and how the relationship. Um, develops over years and decades and how the, the dares um, develop and escalate and, and then where the movie ends, where these where this relationship <laughs> goes in the end. Uh, it's, it's very 
it's it's fun to watch it's it's tense to watch and um yeah that 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 aspect of thirst reminded me of um love me if you dare the the codependency and the 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 relationship this this we're not good for each other but we can't leave each other and and we're 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 hurting each other but we also come back together and and this is what 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 we do until the end basically hmm. <laughs> do you have a pick i do have a pick um and predictably it's not an imaginative one and actually it's already been mentioned during this episode um i was going to go for only lovers left alive uh the jim jarmusch movie from 2013 um we've already talked about it on the show i believe so i would uh, recommend we did people, an episode yeah. yeah so people should go back and uh, and check out that review but um i think that the idea of and uh, the film exploring a relationship between two vampires but also the fact that it has this side plot of christopher marlowe um who is dying and eventually i think does pass away from ingesting bad blood um the idea that vampires can get sick and can die uh, which is something which is very much a part of this movie as well. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's an interesting one because a lot of movies, I think, concentrate just on the good-looking, ageless vampires that will never get sick, will never get old, will never die. And, you know, they. I'm not saying that they don't explore the downsides of, of vampirism because a lot of them do, but... Uh, it's rare that you find a movie where vampires are still um, vulnerable to illness and, and uh, things of that nature. So uh, that plus the relationship aspect, plus the tonal nature of the two films, the fact that the beginning of First does feel very much like, and I was when you mentioned Only Lovers Left Alive, I was nodding sagely because I was like, yes, that is absolutely a film that i was thinking of from a tonal point yeah. of view in, in the early going of, of this um and also they're both based on books uh or maybe they're not i don't know i just looked that up no no it's got nothing to do with it never mind me i'm just i'm just throwing shit in the dark and hoping that i hit something with it um but no it's a really good movie it's got a lot of good people in it and um it, like Again, sometimes these double feature picks are more of an excuse to point people into the direction of other movies that we just think people should see. And this ticks a lot of boxes, so that's what I've gone for. So, yeah, 2013's Only Lovers Left Alive, starring Tilda Swinton, Tom Hiddleston, and John Hurt as Christopher Marlowe, uh, directed by Jim Jarmusch. Wonderful. Definitely works. Good pick. And with that, we conclude our episode on Thirst. We all hope you liked it. If you have seen the movie, send us a message. Let us know what you think on social media or on our email address, international at gmail.com. So by the time... No, not by the time. Um, we will release this episode. And in the next few days, maybe the next day or the day after... There will be another release on our podcast feed because we have an announcement um, that yeah we will do on on an on an audio release on an, on, a, on a podcast release um, in the, the day or two after the release of this episode. So look out 
for that. Um, give it a listen uh, because it's an yeah important announcement for the immediate future of the show. Yeah. Anyway, so that's it. Anything else you want to add, Dave? No, I think we've covered everything now. Right. Then, thank you, Dave. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Andy. And <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> uh, yeah, watch horror movies. Uh, until next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This has been a production of FanOff.com. And that's perfect.